passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Rewind the dynamite from the most recent sight. AEW, lighting up the fuse. Sit back and enjoy the bubbly. As we hear from John and Waiting. Where we're going, we don't need roads. And if the bug stops here, this thing might blow. Everything you hear, opinions of the show. And if you don't like it, go to the forums and let them know. Hello. Welcome to Rewind to Dynamite. I am John Pollock, joined by Waiting, and tonight we are going to be talking about AEW Dynamite, Legacy of Blood. <laughs> Pretty much, wasn't it? That was uh, quite the match. We now have a uh, a debate on what was the superior 50-minute match from AEW over the last couple of nights. I think many people will uh, have their thoughts, and... Let's all have our thoughts uh, for whoever is coming out for Rampage as we speak to follow that blood and guts match. Or how about the ring crew, okay? Whoever has to clean that up. Yeah, you're right. It'll probably be a bit of a gap before. I mean, if ever there was a night to tape Rampage first instead of last, tonight would have been it. Well, it's a royal Rampage, John. You know, big battle royal. Does it have to be done (laughs) late at night? It's always going to be a challenge, but maybe especially tonight. Well, we are going to be getting on uh, lots to come tonight. This is just the warm-up, folks. You're going to be hearing from me and Way for hours tonight. Hours. We're going to be mm-hmm. chatting about blood and guts. We're going to be talking about the latest news. And for those on the Post Wrestling Cafe, as soon as we wrap up here, we're jumping over to the cafe where we're going to talk about more blood, more guts. It is our review of Abdullah the Butcher. Legacy of Blood from Dark Side of the Ring on Tuesday night. So boy, did they, um, maybe that's why Dark Side moved their schedule around to play off of the theme of the week, which is blood. Really the perfect, yeah, really the perfect, I think, uh, segue to um, talk about Dark Side of the Ring after something like this. And I I have to imagine Mox might have been inspired by watching this, uh, thus the reason for the forks, perhaps. Could have been maybe last night he was just watching and he thought, you know what? We've done the screwdriver to death. It's now being used by other companies. Let's let's move on to forks. Could be. All right. We'll talk all about that. Way, what is up on the site now? What can people check into? I know it's been a it's been a slow week here at Post Wrestling, but we, uh, what what could people scratch the surface and find? A whole lot up there right now. Yesterday, I had the chance to talk to Justin Goodman, brother of Jordan, on the wellness policy, talking about fitness and nutrition. And that was a really informative and uh, insightful chat. So that's up on the cafe feed right now for free for everybody. Also here up on YouTube uh, this afternoon, John, you and Brandon had a chance to talk to Chris Samsa, didn't you? The Chris Samsa on Twitter. The, yes. Yes. Uh, we had Chris on to talk about the G1 and... 
uh, Brandon and him got to uh, bond over Python and we got to hear about sort of how he got into New Japan and now has become really this interesting kind of addition to these New Japan broadcasts in that he fuels all of these stats to Kevin Kelly and they incorporate these into the broadcast, I think, in a very um, natural way. It's not as though it's just reading off all these random stats like they work themselves into the match stories. And, you know, Chris Sampson puts uh, a ton of work into this. So it was cool to hear from his thoughts on the G1. And then Brandon and I also talking about a lot of the latest news. Tony Khan had a media call on Tuesday. We discussed the idea of a three hour dynamite. Is it that preposterous? And would it make sense for AEW in the absence of a Friday night show? If you were to move that hour to 10 to 11 on Wednesday nights. I think the argument makes a lot of sense, uh, honestly. I mean, not so much, I think, for our lives um, and certainly not for um, our spouses' lives. But um, if you are signed on to provide this much content, what's the best way to you know, guarantee that you have a big audience for this third hour, essentially, of, of Rampage? I don't think there's any argument. The audience you would get at from 10 to 11 on Wednesday night versus Friday night from 10 to 11. And mm-hmm. it's no added cost. It's what is going on at this moment at the TD Garden is being broadcast live. You can argue the cost might be an exhaustion for your audience watching at home, not just the audience that's live. Um, you can argue maybe there might be detriments, you know, in other ways, but I could at least see him, you know, considering the idea. Yeah, I think if you're talking about exhaustion, you're you're at that point. Like it's you're still consuming that amount of hours per week. Yeah, but a lot of people aren't choosing to watch Rampage. You know, by putting it on right after Dynamite, you're you're kind of telling people that this is a part of the show. And do you want to risk people only watching a part portion of Dynamite at this point? Anyway, it's it's a bigger discussion, but that's up on the site. Really interesting conversation as always between you and Brandon uh, and Chris Samsa. Also on the site, just released while we were actually watching Dynamite, our latest G1 coverage show, G1 Climax 33 Night Four, uh, hosted by Karen. And Bruce, so that's up the, on the on the set right now. Night three was uh, covered between John and WH Park yesterday, so that's all up at postwrestlingcafe.com or video.postwrestling.com. Way was very happy to hear WH on the on the show on Tuesday. I mean, you know, he's kind of been missed on some of these New Japan reviews. In uh, in a G one context, it's always very refreshing to hear WH takes as well as his new scale. He has a new rating system that you have to listen to the show to get the full appreciation of. So that is up. And then there will be another G1 show on Friday with WH and Eric Marcotte as they will be chatting about the next G1 card. There will also be one dropping on Sunday. So tons of shows coming up Friday night. Way and I are going to be live with a review of the Ring of Honor pay-per-view that I would certainly assume coming out of tonight is going to be Claudio and Pac in the main event. I think that was where most people were led in the direction of, and I would think that that's, they will make that announcement probably imminently. We should even keep an eye on that tonight. Yeah. Yeah. Chat room, keep us updated if that becomes official, but that, that seems very likely at this point. So live at 11 PM Eastern time. And also, also we've got rewind away. That's going to be dropping over the next 24 hours. AWA super clash 85, just because. So look forward to that as well. Coming up. Let's talk about a couple of news items before we get to Dynamite. Rick Steiner, not going to be part of WrestleCon. WrestleCon put out a new statement, and they stated that um, 
When we allowed Rick Steiner to return to our convention as a vendor guest of Tony Hunter Promotions, we did not adequately take into account the impact his past words from our last event still held in the LGBTQIA plus community. We initially allowed him to return because one, we still feel that people deserve a second chance. And number two, Rick did make an apology to all parties that chose to be present. Three, we lacked any type of code of conduct harassment policy that clearly defined our expectations as a convenient participant. He went on to state, after a thoughtful dialogue with Brian Bell of SB Nations Outsports and host of the LGBT In the Ring podcast on Monday, we agreed with their opinion. It was necessary to have some type of public acknowledgement and apology from Rick Steiner at an absolute minimum to allow him to attend Detroit. Because we understand this issue required great urgency, we gave Rick Steiner 24 hours to make such a statement. Unfortunately, there's not currently, and we do not expect to receive such a statement, and we have therefore made a decision to revoke our permission for him to attend. Uh, they go on to state that they have now instituted a draft of a code of conduct and anti-harassment policy that will be placed on their website, and uh, that is the latest. So I think from all sides, the, this, this was handled to me pretty hastily in in the sense that here was somebody that was not even willing to make a public apology and it just seems like WrestleCon like announced this and either thought that there wouldn't be any blowback or felt that it could be managed and instead it just became 24 hours of really you know bad PR for WrestleCon and in the end you know Rick Steiner was not didn't even want to put out a statement or anything like that. He wanted this to be a private matter and thus he's off. So I think this was something that just, um, you know, I don't know, maybe it was just not well thought out in terms of what the expected reaction would be. And the fact that, you know, this guy, if, if he's not even willing to make a public statement about it, um, you can draw your own conclusions to that. Mm-hmm. whether he wants this to just go away and not be a bigger story or, or what. But anyway, it just seems like this was something that was avoidable and now he won't be at WrestleCon. So that's that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like the end result, like I feel WrestleCon handled it well in the aftermath of some of the, that outrage um, in speaking to people that might be a lot more aware of like, you know, the harm of his words and in, in taking action beyond that to try to request at least a public statement from Rick Steiner. Um, and then subsequently- they, they weren't stubborn in the sense of like, where we're just going to ride out the negative coverage and people will tire of it and move on to the next news cycle. Like they did take active measures, like speaking mm-hmm. to an individual in the community and, you know, seeking out uh, an, a public apology from Rick Steiner. Like, you can't say they just simply put this out and then they didn't care about the backlash. It seems like they did take that aspect to heart. Yeah, and I think they should be commended for their reaction to the public, you know, uh, response to to the decision. Um, in the end, I think this guy just kind of has shown his true colors that much more, you know, towards the public. And I, I have even less reason to want to, you know, support anything Rick Steiner related in the future. It doesn't read well when he was asked to give a public statement and mm. opted not to do so and has not addressed it at all publicly since. And it just seems as though, you know, whatever he did privately, it's like only those people that were involved in that can speak to what they determined was his sincerity or lack thereof uh, from the story. Ryan Danielson gave an update today. Uh, this was uh, just a day after I, I had asked about this on the on the media call, but he confirmed that he got surgery on his arm two weeks ago and had a steel rod and nine screws inserted. He said surgery went well. I'm on the road to recovery. 
but no update. Obviously, that sounds very significant. And as Tony Khan mentioned on the media call, that it was worse than originally thought. And, you know, that night, you know, Danielson has not had it checked out by, you know, at that point, he's talking about an hour after this injury and is thinking six to eight weeks is reasonable. That does not seem likely. Uh, he seemed to think it was simply like maybe, maybe a, like a smaller fracture mm-hmm. rather than a clean break. Um, yeah, six to eight weeks was, was probably very, um, a very early, early estimate without really seeing x-rays or anything else. And that timetable coincided with the idea in the room that, man, all in is maybe, maybe it's possible. I, I would say that's, that's probably unlikely. Not to say he couldn't appear on some of these big shows in a non-wrestling mm-hmm. capacity, but, um, yeah, it, it would be, pretty much shocking if he is wrestling anytime soon it's really unfortunate i mean it's AEW's biggest show he's one of the biggest names on the entire roster and i imagine would have been set up for a pretty big match so you have to wonder how tony is pivoting who his opponent was scheduled to be um unfortunate but man like this these things happen in wrestling and um he's co- he's going to be coming back i think with mm, with quite the like legendary story to tell coming out of that match where he wrestled it with a broken arm, won it yeah. with a broken arm. He won it with a broken friggin' arm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Ratings notes: uh, Collision did five hundred seventy nine thousand viewers, point two zero in the demo on Saturday night. So they were even in viewership, down eight percent in the demo, twenty four percent drop in eighteen to thirty four. But I would state uh, a point two you have to be happy with on a Saturday night. And thus far, um, you know, they had the really strong number for week one and then, you know, all but the Hamilton shows I would say have been done, have been, been good numbers. I would classify them as good numbers minus the Hamilton show, which, you know, you can look at that as an aberration. The next time punk does not wrestle on the show. uh, Do we see a similar drop? Because all these other episodes have featured punk matches. Um, Could be this Saturday. You're right. We will see this Saturday because all they have announced so far is the trio's title match for Saturday. And I, I really feel the idea of like leaving more match announcements to rampage. Um, I really feel for collision. You need to have at least like a one, two lineup for collision by Wednesday to set that audience into the weekend, knowing what's happening. Uh, cause the Saturday could be tough. I don't know if that trio's match is necessarily drawing everybody in regardless of what gets announced on, on Friday night. Raw did a million eight hundred fifty-five thousand viewers and a point five seven. So in line with with what they have been doing, they were up three percent in viewers, two percent in the demo, and this was not having to contend with the home run derby. Uh, but looking at Raw, just year to year, they continue to be uh, up significantly, especially with the younger viewers. And then the really interesting number was Tuesday's NXT that did seven hundred and forty-six thousand viewers. 0.21 in the demo, up 11 and 9% respectively. And this also was their second largest number of the entire year behind the Seth Rollins Braun Breaker episode from a few weeks ago. Uh, men 18 to 34 was up 37%, although women in that demo down 28%. So I don't know what that says about Dominic, but uh, Dominic's that final quarter got a, a big bump with a Dominic and Wes Lee. It was clearly Dominic going for the title that was the attraction on this show and Dominic winning the North American title, which certainly the numbers would suggest like a short or even extended run with Dominic on NXT, not the worst idea. Judgment Day is as hot as it's ever been. And I think this could be something great for Dominic. And, you know, it it shows like an interest in, in Dominic here that he, I don't think would necessarily command this interest on Raw. 
I think it's it's perfect for everybody. I think everybody wins coming out of this. You know, Dominic is a type of star that um, he doesn't have to be booked strong in order to be used, you know, a lot and to gain a lot of value out of. I mean, you saw it with the Cody program where, you know, the guy like was not has not never really been booked strong, but nonetheless, I think attracted a decent amount of attention for a Cody program in between the Brock matches. Uh, that was successful, I would classify. And then the, his use here in, in NXT, he's not winning that much on Raw, but you put him in NXT, he becomes that much more of a bigger deal. And despite not winning that much on Raw, gets some of the biggest reactions, uh, you know, on really any program that he appears on. But on NXT, he feels like a big star. The North American title is a title that is kind of like it's valuable to somebody who hasn't been on the main roster, but like somebody who has like a solo Sokoa or now Dominic Mysterio, it's a great prop and it's a great sort of like just, you know, reason to be able to say, look at the judgment day. They've got a ton of gold and it's a great attraction for NXT. So I think, I think everybody wins. And you would think that Wesley would come out of this with, with something as well, whether it be, you know, a, an eventual win over Dominic, or maybe he advances over to the world title picture. I, I, I can't imagine he'd be just left behind as a result of this. So potentially i think everybody could benefit maybe maybe he's gonna go back to like depressed wesley out in the ocean and then we're gonna see him like watching impact wrestling on his phone with trey miguel and zachary Wentz back reunited i feel like he's in a better spot but it's it's always possible yeah i also want to mention on nxt uh, first with dominic it was a great little tie-in having tony d'angelo passed by Dominic and, you know, mentioned like someone at prison saying hi to Dominic or whatever. (laughs) The whole Tony D'Angelo thing, like they've done a very good job with this. Like the way they have laid out this story and the plan with him and Channing Lorenzo, and they did the flashbacks to tie it all together. I I thought like a lot of thought went into this story and making it make sense by the end of the whole thing, which you don't typically get something spread out over six weeks like this. And it felt like it had a culmination to it. And now they're going for the tag titles. Like there was a purpose behind it. And if you're going to tell a prison story, I mean, it's one of the least... best prison stories we've gotten in wrestling in a while. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you like it. <laughs> not your cup of tea. That's not, fine. Not necessarily. Also um, in Canada, uh, NXT did 94,600 viewers. It was fourth for the night in sports. And of the data I have for NXT, um, you know, there, there might be the odd week we didn't get data for, but of what I have, which is most of it, this is the highest number uh, for NXT in Canada. And the replay, the replay at 11 p.m. ranked in the top 10 uh, for sports. So there was certainly interest in both countries. Maybe that it certainly endorses Dominic as the North American champion, the fact he's drawing in both countries. Uh, I I think he should promote that fact in his next promo. And Dark Side of the Ring did 178,000 viewers, 0.06. So a bounce back after falling last week for the Adrian Adonis episode. This was the fourth most watched episode of the season behind JYD, Doink, and the Grams. G1 Climax, they are four days through and they return on Friday. So they have a day off. Wait, are you caught up on G1 or uh, you have fallen behind? I'm very much fallen behind. I mean, I, I've realized it's it's either raise a, an 11 month old child or keep up with the G1. And um, I've chosen the former at the moment. Well, we're all happy that you you have made th- that decision because, um, you know, th- there was certainly some stuff to see on these two shows. I thought that uh, Wednesday show was the weakest one so far. The first half of this show, extremely skippable, um, but it got better 
towards the latter half. So they're back on Friday uh, in Niigata, and we've got uh, a lineup that includes Sonata against Yodasuji, a rematch from Dominion, Kazuchika Okada against Taichi, Shota Umino and Kaito Kiyomiya, Will Ospreay against Kenta, Chase Owens against Hikuleo, El Fantasmo takes on Great Okan, Gabe Kidd versus Ren Narita, and Tangaloa against Yoshihashi. So that is uh, all that's coming up, and a few uh, undefeated records so far. Uh, the A block is led by Sonata and Kiyomiya. The B block has Okada and Taichi on top. C block, Evil and David Finlay. And then block D, Jeff Cobb, and the best man on the mic this year, Zach Sabre Jr. Mm-hmm. I, it's a guarantee before the end of this G1, he's going to cut a promo supporting the writers. Uh, you think so? I Maybe. Think, I think he's definitely on the side of the writers. For sure. Okay. Uh, just, just, you know, if you're finding it maybe as daunting to keep up with every single match in the G1 as I am, uh, we do have match recommendations on all of our G1 podcast show descriptions. So if you simply go to postwrestling.com slash G1 and just look for the show, you don't even have to be a patron to look for these. Simply click on the show descriptions and then you can see which matches out of the card that our hosts for that particular episode would recommend watching. So, um, I might have to rely on that a, a bit just to keep up with the past two nights. Yes. Uh, always great to have the, uh, the recommendations there for people that are in a pinch. And the last thing, uh, as we look at this ROH card that we're reviewing on Friday night. So, so far we've got Claudio Castagnoli against an opponent to be announced that I would imagine will be announced pretty soon, maybe even by the end of the show. Samoa Joe against uh, Shane Taylor or Dalton Castle. If you've read ahead, you know who the opponent is. Katsuyori Shibata against Daniel Garcia for the Pure Championship. Athena versus Willow Nightingale for the Women's Championship. And then a four-way, which Tony Khan has now stated, they don't do fatal four-ways. It's four-ways in AEW. No, no, one, no one will die. As a result he, he's of suggesting that that's a WWE branding that he didn't want to adopt. And I, 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 I mean, it's been fatal four-way for so long to me. That I didn't even question it, but okay, sure. So it is the the Lucha Brothers defending the tag titles against the Kingdom, Mike Bennett and Matt Taven, best friends Chuck Taylor and Trent Beretta, and Aussie Open. So Mark Davis is back on this card on Friday night, hmm. and we will see what else is added. They have uh, five matches official and probably a bunch more that will be thrown on there for Friday night's card in Trenton, New Jersey, the Cure Insurance Arena. Yes. Mm-hmm. Always great. To have a, you know, insurance company. I thought um, Tony Khan's answer about just his struggles with putting this card together was really, really a really good answer from Tony Khan. You know, I thought this was one of Tony Khan's best calls with the media. I thought he was very open about whatever he was asked. There were not any kind of non-answers, I would say. And I thought he gave like a lot of good insight on a ton of things. And yeah, the so originally this was going to be Claudio and Eddie Kingston. And Eddie Kingston really wanted to do the G1. And mm. I mean, there are not too many promoters that if they had a pay-per-view main event scheduled, just be tough. It's just a bad time for us. You're and the story had G1. already been going. This whole thing up until this point has been building Claudio and Eddie. Yeah. yeah. Here we're thinking about like blood and guts, which I would think that Eddie would have also been in blood and guts tonight on top of that. And of then course. doing it with the two on the opposite this sides. This would have been the perfect setup the for, for death before dishonor. Yeah. So instead, and, 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 he, and it's the blood and guts build that started last blood and guts. Exactly. You're tying yeah. in last year's finish with, mm-hmm. uh, when the two are on the same team together. So Eddie Kingston is allowed to do the G1 and Tony even sought out like an option that Eddie could fly home to do Friday's 
uh, Death Before Dishonor show and then go back for his match on Sunday. And he's not on Friday's G1 card, but the logistics of doing that were just insane. And yeah. Eddie Kingston would have been um, – his head would have been spinning if he had to pull off <laughs> – that flight in that short window. God, it, it like yeah, it's it's not even like it's not like flying to Tijuana for a weekend like Kenny did, and then coming back and working the AEW schedule. I mean, a, a flight to Japan is in the midst of the G one. Let the man rest. It's it's fine. So then the plan was Mark Briscoe, and I guess he's had like a nagging knee injury for a while, and he finally just had to tell them that he he can't go, and he's he's going to be out. So. They had just a plethora of problems and we'll get whatever the main event is announced uh, soon from AEW. But here we are with 48 hours to go and the main event, I thought they would, I think by the end, like they certainly shot the angle with Claudio and Pac. But Mm -hmm. if you were someone that is like, this was not in your plans for Friday night, other than one mention from Excalibur during the blood and guts match, like you have no idea about this ROH pay-per-view and it's yep. just, um, which seems to be in line with the way ROH pay-per-views have been promoted as of late, hasn't it? And, and I do wonder how much of that is because it's in direct competition with AEW rampage. Like, you know, does TNT or TBS have a problem with them pushing this too much? Well, I mean, tonight's mentions like there was nothing directing you other than Claudio's defending the title on pay-per-view this Friday night, but no information, no graphics, nothing. I would, I I would think that, you know, at the very least you use your show, which is such a contrast to like some of those early ROH pay-per-views where the complaint from fans was there was too much ROH content on the show. And now it's Mm -hmm. the polar opposite. I would think there's maybe some happy medium in there, but I mean, it is, it is what it is. Yeah. We we don't know. We don't know, like, you know, what, what Turner might have told them in, in between that time, uh, whatever. I mean, it's this show is very, very much sold to like more of a hardcore fan base than even AEW. And the past ones have done, I, I would say, relatively well for Ring of Honor standards, you know, just with a last minute build. But it also had Briscoe's versus FTR, which is already sort of like a program that, that that's building itself. This card does not really have anything like that. Well, let's get into Blood and Guts from the TD Garden, their first time running this venue in Boston, and it was a big win for them. The last update from WrestleTix had this up to 8,919 tickets distributed. So this, I am, I believe, passes Seattle. So this would be the number three TV crowd of the year behind the Kia Forum in January and the United Center last month for the debut of Collision. So uh, this was a tremendous number for AEW to draw in Boston. And it would suggest to me way that they probably book the TD Garden when they come back to Boston. Sure. I mean, how much of it is blood and guts? And can they replicate something? I would say this is all blood and guts. Like this is, this has steadily increased from the announcement on. Well, can they do this well without blood and guts or would they look to, you know, have something just as big as a special attraction? I think you draw a number like this and you have the confidence that you come back in six months and that you're, you're going to retain a lot of this audience that came. And I mean, this crowd was amazing. Just amazing. Like we, Mm -hmm. we got some great crowds this week. We had, I don't even know what you would list as your best matches of the week, but what a loaded week when you incorporate everything and you throw this blood and guts into things. Mm -hmm. We are sponsored by Shark Week that kicks off on Sunday, hosted by Jason Momoa. Yeah. um, uh, A lot of drama with, with Aquaman, too, it sounds like. 
oh, stuck in post-production hell. They're on like their third set of reshoots and it's been in post-production for like 18 months now at this point. So, um, do you see what they're projecting Barbie at this weekend? This thing's like one, going 150. Yeah. It's, like like, it's just steadily climbing and climbing. Mm-hmm. I feel it, man. I feel the buzz. Is Christopher Nolan going to take it on the chin this weekend? Or do you think um, they'll, they'll hold their might. own? Um, I'm, I'm thinking Barbie does a lot better. Barbie's going to win. It's just a question of by how much. Right. I mean, is it even, you're right. Like, I mean, you look at Chris Nolan versus Barbie, like, I don't know, six months ago, I, I would have said, yeah, the Chris Nolan movie, who's going to watch the Barbie movie. But, um, a lot of people are going to watch the Barbie movie. Word of mouth helps. And I think having, you know, family friendly option helps for a lot of people. This post wrestling podcast is brought to you by nerd wallet, smart money podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible, conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April, so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister. And putting away more money for retirement, because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you. Well, thank you. Well, we did not get the uh, the sounds of uh, Barbie Girl or anything because first we hear Baltimore for the last time as the mm-hmm. music ends. And there's Jungle Boy out in the um, sweltering desert of Massachusetts, known for their um, hot <laughs> deserts and uh, you know, cavernous land. And... There, they didn't he, say this was. He didn't say he did this right before the match. This was weeks ago. This was somewhere else. He's out in the desert. Could have been a few days this ago. Danielson sure. and Yuta were out there uh, doing neck bridges. So he's uh, who, who's he burying here? Was that uh, indicated, or was this just symbolic of his? So I mean, Excalibur said that he, he buried his boots, but I feel like I saw a body attached to those. boots. That's what I thought. I, I didn't have time to rewind this, but I, I mean, I thought I saw someone going in here too. I think it was metaphorical. You know, yeah. He, he buried Jungle Boy, basically. So he buried limo- Baltimore. Th- that's it. Yeah. The uh, the rights in perpetuity were uh, put underground. So mm-hmm. this limo pulls up and he gets into the back of the limo. Um, and that obviously is, uh, you know, will reveal itself in time. Whoever is. You think so? You think that was an actual thing? The driver? Someone coming to pick him up? Well, maybe you just hired a cab. Maybe you just called Who's Uber X. Dri- it, it, you know, it's been consistent every week. A driver has gotten him out of there, out of True. trouble with Hook. So You're I right. think it's only natural that someone is revealed down the road. Hmm. So how do you follow up Baltimore? The only way you can go. You just continue down the alphabet to Beethoven. And there we go <laughs> with his Beethoven's fifth that yeah. Jungle Boy came out to. And it seemed... um uh, the internet was mixed on this new song. I guess you're, you're, su- you're supposed to hate this. You're not supposed to have a positive reaction to Beethoven. I suppose so. Um, I, I, I think it's fine. Like it's recognizable. It's kind of unique. Um, I, I hear it's free. Oh, okay. I guess it depends on the recording, right? Like you might have to pay for the, the specific recording, but I guess the actual rights would have lapsed a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So he comes out to this. It was fine. Like it's it's a difference, and everyone knew that the the change was coming. Baltimore, uh, their days were numbered. Yeah, so, yeah. 
It's Hook against Jungle Boy. And right from the get-go, like this crowd, they sounded incredible on the on this show. And they were so electric for the start of this match. You would think this was the main event. And Hook goes after him with body shots. And then Jungle Boy rakes the eyes. Taz, Taz was great in this. You know, we talked about how, how difficult Renee had to struggle calling Dean Ambrose matches in WWE. And it was just so clunky. And I don't think we take for granted just how seamless it is for Taz. We all know it's his son. We don't hide from it, but it's also, he's not caught up in it. And this was a perfect example of it. Like he's calling it, but he's not freaking out. It's like his son's a wrestler and he knows that he applauds, you know, that was a smart move to rake my kid in the eyes. And I I think Taz was really strong here, but not to the degree of overshadowing either. It helps that Taz's character, at least in AEW, is, is really that, that of a coach. And when you're coaching, you're essentially kind of like talking about things from the sidelines. And you're not one to, especially as a babyface, want to get involved at all. Um, so he's basically, you know, you're watching like soccer match with like, you know, one of the player's dads at, at, at whatever community center. You know, I would love to have Taz coaching soccer. Sure. Yeah. And have him mic'd. So they end up on the apron, and this leads to Hook T-boning Jungle Boy off the apron and into this poor cameraman who just takes it, um, nails the camera. And uh, Perry then hits a draping DDT on the floor. Hook pops up from a German, and he hits a bridging German, and he holds on for the grip, hits another one, and then Jungle Boy grabs Paul Turner and can low blow Hook, hits the running elbow to the back of the head for a great near fall. Crowd extremely heated. Jungle Boy grabs the FTW title and gets worn by Turner and into a head and arm choke they go and they run into Turner and with the referee down, Hook hits a suplex and he has the match won, but there's no one to count. So Hook then gets nailed with the belt and Jack Perry climbs on top and he's got the biggest grin on his face as Turner counts three in 11 minutes and 41 seconds. Jungle Boy is the new FTW champion. Mm Mm-hmm. I thought this was good. You know, I haven't really been all that impressed with Perry's sort of out of the ring heel work at all, but in ring, clearly he has a much higher comfort level with playing a good guy or a bad guy. And I thought this was a really good first outing for him as a heel in a big singles match. Um, I think the presentation refresh, you know, with the video package, with the music, and I think with his, his new look with his beard and tied back hair, I thought it all worked for me. You know, whether or not you loved him coming out to be to- Tobin's fifth. I mean, the point is, do you see a refreshed character? Are you paying a different uh, attention to him um, than you did before? And for me, the answer was yes. I thought his in-ring intensity as a heel was also really solid. Um, the, you know, he, he does come across a little like generic bad guy to me, at least in the way he's booked with some of the like pretty generic heel heelisms. Um, but I thought he did a good job with, you know, playing the old hits basically. And the booking made sense because he's uh, on a brand new path. You want to establish him. You want to give hook somebody to chase. I thought tonight was a positive overall. Yeah. I think that, Jack Perry is like, this is step one of a multi-step process. I think of him finding himself as a heel that he's going to have to do on national television, but you couldn't ask for a crowd that took to him better. There was no fighting with the crowd. They had the clearly defined baby face and hook and they hated Jack Perry. So from that Mm -hmm. sense of it, it worked. And I'm, I'm 
happy to see where he's at thus far. And this is probably a good level to have him at. It's not as though they're shoving him into the world title picture or something he is not capable or ready for. The FTW title is very much like AEW's version of the North American Championship in NXT. You're not really losing anything by taking it off of somebody. Hook was not doing anything with it whatsoever. While as, you know, Jack Perry taking it off a of hook actually means something at least tonight. So yeah, let's see if this feud continues. Dominic and Hook. That is, that's going to be like this generation. Like, Dom has said he wanted that match. Could you imagine what a, yeah, what a match point. that would be with the father's uh, coaching? Yes. Maybe they can have a soccer game. Alex Marvez, who is just becoming like a parody now of an, of a reporter. He's chasing down the hottest story. So he spies on Jericho and Don Callis having a meal together. And, uh, Callis is showing something on his phone, probably showing, look, look at this guy taking me down, thinking this was real. Um, no mention, no footage of that attack or even like Takeshita attacking Omega. Like what was the purpose of this angle that they shot at Triple Mania? I guess that's, a, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I can understand not wanting to glorify, you know, like a, like what, what is basically sort of like a fan attack or something that's unprovoked. Um, yeah, why I can get it, that. But the, the Takeshita part, I mean, that feeds into the match tonight. Like what was the purpose of sending Takeshita for this whole mm-hmm. thing? Well, maybe he just wanted a trip to Tijuana. I hear it's a fun town. Okay. Yeah. Well, he got it then. Uh, Taz explains he, uh, they spot Marvez, they kick him out. Taz explains, I don't want to be on camera right now. And he's still selling like the effects of like that last match and seeing his son lose. So again, I thought Taz was very good. Then we go to the latest, uh, bro hang last night, MJF and Adam Cole, they are outside of a restaurant that is revealed as the legendary Kowloon's in mm-hmm. Massachusetts. And MJF, I, I would love to go at this point. Like I, I, I had only kind of recently learned about it and, and how like it really is like, it feels like it's such a, landmark for wrestlers oh, that for wrestle in the Boston area. Um, like it feels like it's like Boston's version of like Ribera, you know, I'd love to see it. Well, they serve spicy food and alcohol is what we learned uh, disguised as water. So Adam Cole wants MJF to face his fear of eating spicy food. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to not care for spicy food. It's another thing to fear it. Um, I could see it. Be- well, what do you mean? Do you have a fear of poutine? No, I just don't like it, but it does not keep me up at night. I'm not frightened by the sight of it. Mm. Well, he's he's scared of spicy food. Well, he gave in pretty easily here. MJF is telling him the story of slamming Big Bill in the Saskatoon Silverdome. And then their food arrives and they're eating their spicy food and it's really hot. And then they need water. And as they're chugging down the water... The waiter informs them it's 100% alcohol. Mm-hmm. So they should be dead right now. Yeah, yeah. This was like 100 proof. Okay, so they're mm-hmm. like, this was just, they gave them moonshine here to wash down their food. We get a time lapse and they're drunk. Yeah. My favorite Adam Cole. Adam Great. Cole playing drunk. Drunk acting. He wasn't yeah. any better this week than he was last week, but we're just running with it at this point. And they start to look at the waiter. And Cole thinks he looks like Sammy Guevara. MJF disagrees, says he's a dead ringer for Garcia. And we end this segment with the two of them getting up and apparently landing a double clothesline on this waiter that we never get to see. So they perfected it the night before, wall drunk, and Mm -hmm. avoided a hangover the next day for this match. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, how how you typically prepare for a match. Sure. Yeah, these are incredibly corny, and I think in some ways they make this show look kind of cheap, you know, especially like involving your world title program um, in these sort of segments. But they're fun, and I think the more you lean into the corniness and the cheapness of it all, um, the more it becomes kind of endearing. And most importantly, these end up like resulting in the great types of reactions you see in the matches like we saw last week and especially tonight. They're effective and they work. They they performed well these segments last week, and I mean clearly this has like I, I'm not the biggest fan of these segments, but it would be wrong to deny that they are working. And this audience, like they really want to see these two become friends, and they're mm-hmm. totally into it. And there's a lot you can. We'll get into the match of just like what a simple layout and demonstration of tease your fans with something make them want it and then give it to them and this crowd just were it was something to watch marvez is waiting outside callus and jericho pull up together in a limo and they called marvez an idiot and won't answer if jericho has signed with callus Britt baker takes on kayla sparks this was just nothing she came in Sling Blade puts on the glove, swinging neckbreaker, and lockjaw in a minute six. Just a self-contained, nothing match, no angle, no promo, just Britt Baker on the show. I don't know what purpose like this was serving. Like I don't know what pro- program Britt's currently like involved with or, or will be involved with in the future. I don't like usually these sort of like squash matches are to set up promos or to set up angles. Um, none of that. There was really no purpose to this. Other than maybe like fulfilling your quota for one woman's wrestling match on this program, perhaps. Um, and what a match, I guess, you know, like, I mean, are you really satisfying seconds? that critic? Well, that's it. You know, like, why couldn't she have at least cut a promo or something? Well, that was, that was all Kayla Sparks, um, extra credit tax caliber who had to pivot from Ricky Starks to Kayla Sparks when he was recapping the Owen tournament. Renee is with MJF and Adam Cole and, Cole says they caught lightning in a bottle and MJF says their plan A is hitting the close, the double clothesline. And unlike Sammy Guevara and his wife, we don't need plan B. <laughs> Good Fuck. line. So he has surprised Adam Cole. He got him matching trunks, but then Cole got him matching jackets. And he also has another surprise he's going to have to wait for. And as they take off, in walks Roderick Strong, who is becoming like the most comedic character on this show with the neck brace on. Adam! And Adam doesn't even stop. He's moved on with MJF, and he has nothing to say to Renee. This guy who is flying across the country every week in like with a bulging disc in his neck and just can't even get a conversation with Adam Cole. Yeah, well, I don't know exactly how I'm supposed to feel about Roderick Strong at this point. I mean, like, am I am I supposed to be laughing at him? I think at this point, yes, he is a bit comedic. But like, is he not supposed to play like the conscience of of Adam Cole? Like, like, why is he supposed to be a comedic character? Yeah, and what happened with the 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 argument with Britt Baker last week with Cole? She was upset, and nothing this week. What what argument? Remember when she called him on the phone after seeing the the spot where MJF no, they must, messed up with the women? They must have settled things uh, okay. back home. Okay. MJF and Adam Cole against Sammy Guevara and Daniel Garcia, the blind eliminator finals. And in the history of pro wrestling on cable television, we have never had such contrasting matches air back to back as the two we are about to review. Yeah. 
Jericho comes out to Judas and he waves off the song and this crowd continues singing the lyrics and man, were they loud. And he joins commentary, says he's still negotiating with Don Callis and he's here to watch Guevara and Garcia. MJF comes out to his music and then awaiting Adam Cole, his music starts again, but it's not just his regular theme. It's a mashup of the two men's themes together as Adam Cole comes out and I'm assuming that uh, Mikey Ruckus was busy over the last couple of weeks making this tune. I I would assume. Yeah, sure. I mean, he was responsible for um, most of AEW's music. I thought it was great. What a lovely surprise, you know? I think this should happen anytime two single stars are put into a tag team. And I'm saying mashup, okay? Not the, like the sort of excuse of like, what did they do for like a, like some of these big, big show like teams that were just like straight up cuts that were just god awful that the WWE used to do? Remember they used to do this? Yes. They would just like hard cut between like one song to another, like with no musicality it, it, like put into it at all. This was great. This was like, you know, and we all know this team's going to break up eventually, everybody. But man, like every little detail you put into something like this, matching tights, matching jackets, T-shirts, it's just taking that sort of like it's make it's making that breakup that much more effective whenever it happens. It's the whole point of this. Like everyone knows what's coming, but you have to convince the audience that these two have such a friendship that you you don't want to see them break up like you're giving people the reason that they're friends so that it will mean that much more um that you're actually invested in these two being friends so this whole place they're chanting double clothesline which is amazing and garcia and mjf start doing a dance-off and this crowd is going nuts for this and then MJF calls for a dance-off. He goes down to the timekeeper section and starts playing music. And we get Garcia and Guevara dancing. And this, I, I can't even properly describe, but they had a whole routine down here. Um, don't know if they'd get a 10 on execution, but they certainly did on effort. And then Adam Cole came in, and this man is like the world's worst dancer. And ends with a record scratch, and then the JAS attack them and the match begins. But this was right out of a PWG or, you know, some of those mania weekend cards that was, um, I'm sure some people will uh, lose their mind over how they started this, but man, this crowd was electric for this. Mm -hmm. This was a risk for sure. Right. You know, especially uh, like talking to like doing it in front of an AEW audience that is going to criticize every single thing that doesn't necessarily fit into what they want their professional wrestling to be. And I almost wonder at this point, did they just put this in there to specifically piss those people off just to be able to say, Hey, like this is what professional wrestling could be. It was fun. Like this entire program has been the tone of this entire thing has been slapsticky and this crowd has been eating it up. And I think something as ridiculous as this perfectly fit into what this feud has been so far. We've been seeing this over the last month where Dynamite, it's been focusing on a lot more outside of the ring uh, character work. And MJF and Adam Cole has been example one of that. And this certainly continued that. Do you think that this is a concerted effort to differentiate this with Collision that is starting to get this um, reputation as being a more traditional meat and potatoes wrestling show? And this has coincided with Dynamite. Taking like these are segments that you would have, I don't think, ever seen on AEW in year one mm -hmm. or two. And they're getting much more, I think, free to do stuff like this. And 
the MJF and Cole stuff, like there's certainly going to be an audience that hates this stuff, but it is also character work that seems to be working for them. And this match certainly was evidence. I mean, it's possible, but I mean, you're also going to get MJF and Cole having a match on Saturday, you know, so how much of it is, uh, is it a concerted effort to separate Dynamite from Collision? And how much of it is just what we've always known with AEW? And that's, you know, every feud, basically every performer cutting, kind of having their own style and, and their own, you know, especially up top, you know, the, their own direction to change tones. If they Will they try to. and have a dance off with FTR in Hartford? I think that one's a bit more unlikely, but are there going to be comedic elements about Saturday show? I'm sure there will be. I'm sure the double clothesline will be a big spot. So the match itself begins and MJF just starts running the ropes and puts up his arms like MJF in these matches. It's, it's amazing because like this whole match, it it was when you consider who's in this match, this was like the safest match and done with like maximum reactions. It was like they have it all figured out and this audience just ate it up and they could just get the most out of the least in this match. And it was amazing to watch this, like just like the over the topness of MJF doing the dramatic fall onto Sammy's groin. And just for for any reaction, they would call for the double clothesline. And this audience, like they were going to lose their minds when this double clothesline was finally hit. Uh, so Jericho is getting frustrated seeing, uh, his team getting, uh, with Garcia and Guevara getting, you know, controlled by Cole and MJF. Uh, MJF teased the crossroads at one point. And then after Garcia applies a dragon slayer on Cole, he reaches the ropes and stomps Cole's knee. Both are on the floor and Cole tries to get MJF to dive and he goes to run the ropes. Can't do it. So Cole urges him again and MJF hits a suicide dive and this dive is probably like on the list of dives you've seen in AEW this would probably rank somewhere around 250th reaction wise it was among the highest this place went insane and there is quite the lesson to learn there it got as, as much reaction as commander doing his or you know what uh, springboard double jump shooting star press type of thing it's it's a big difference, though, because, you know, once you're over, you can really get away with the simplest thing, right? And guys who don't have that mic time nor the talent and the ability of an NJF to, you know, talk and to perform in, in non-wrestling segments aren't going to have that luxury. They do have to do springboard shooting star presses and things like that. There's a Panama sunrise to Garcia, and then they call for the double clothesline. And when they hit this, this was just an insane reaction. And it was like, what, two weeks of just teasing people and they gave Mm -hmm. it to them. 10 minutes and 43 seconds, they win and they will now face FTR on July 29th on Collision. And then Garcia and Guevara, they brush past Jericho on the ramp, leaving him out there. And Bryce hands the title, the AEW title, to Adam Cole. MJF's back is turned. He turns around, sees Cole with the title, rips it away, and they start to argue. And the crowd's chanting, hug it out. And they do hug it out. Uh, but there is this close-up look of MJF looking distrustful of Adam Cole. And then we get FTR coming out, and they all go face-to-face, no physicality. And that's the match coming up in 10 days. Really, really fun match. 
I'll be the first to admit, I, I was not really into like this comedic nature of this MJF's Cole program, you know, especially coming off of their draw and how intense that rivalry seemed like it was going to be to kind of take things over to this sort of slapsticky comedic tone I thought was going to be a real risk and a potential mistake. Uh, and watching that first skit last week, I those those first skits you know the first few weeks i kind of felt the same thing but the the biggest thing that really changed my mind was seeing the result in the ring and seeing how these crowds have completely ate up what these guys have served them every little thing that they've been led, leading the, these audiences into this audience and myself included have, have been eating it all up it's been working so well and it tells you the value of those vignettes as cheesy as they may look maybe it's the cheesiness that you know has kind of you know made them made them so um, I don't know, attractive to an audience. Everything has worked. And by the time the turn happens, this thing will be intense, just as more intense than it probably was going to be anyway. Yeah. I think the question now becomes whatever your timeline was, do you extend that? If this thing is working, it would feel as though a breakup and doing the match at one of the all in all outs, like that almost feels like you could ride this out uh, with, with these two. And but you're also on this timeline that you have these shows coming up and that would seem the most logical destination to get to the match. The one, two of having, you know, all in plus all out um, makes you really wonder how they're going to play this thing. You know, can, first of all, do you think we have a title change on Saturday? I'll guess no, if they're keeping with this timetable, but I don't think it's the worst idea at all to, I certainly don't think it's out of the question. I hate it. I hate it. Hate it. Whenever a tag team title is used as a prop to further singles, um, uh, you know, feud and maybe AEW will avoid that, especially since it's FTR, especially since the tag division is so, so hot right now. Um, this is one program where I think the AEW title is actually a detriment to this program. I think this would be a lot cleaner without this being the world title program that is caught in this, that you could ride this tag team out for a lot longer and put the belts on them for a month or two. But what's, but the big money program coming out of this, hopefully is this is all in service to make MJF versus Adam Cole that much bigger. Right. So the big question is where that match takes place. Do you, do you peek it at all in, or do you somehow have them maybe lose the tag titles at all in, and then you can do the match at all out. Don't know. We'll, we'll see how they play. They recap the, uh, the the Owen finals, and we got uh, Jushin Liger getting some face time on Dynamite here in this recap package. God, and then, weird. <laughs> poor Liger. Like, no, nothing taped. Like, they didn't even have, like, some clip of him here. Uh, you know, this I is, think this uh, is all to set up his uh, uh, comeback from retirement, okay? Liger versus Starks. He's got re- reason now to come back. You cost me 20 hours of flight time yeah. <laughs> to come to Calgary. Renee is with the best friends, Darby and Nick Wayne, and she goes over. Chris Statlander is defending the TBS title against Marina Shafir on Rampage. Darby and Nick Wayne are in the Royal Rampage and notes that Orange Cassidy has the night off. And Darby asks Orange for a favor to give his friend A.R. Fox a title shot who took him in when he was homeless. And Orange Cassidy agrees to defend the title against A.R. Fox that they said would happen next week. And so that is that is what we have coming up, presumably on Wednesday. Chompy the shark mascot came out and Taz did not want to be touched by Chompy. Uh, also on Rampage, we've got the acclaimed and daddy ass against QT, Aaron Solo and Johnny TV. And Collision has the trios title match with House of Black against the acclaimed and daddy ass. More matches to be announced on Rampage. 
You find it interesting that the Royal Rampage winner is getting a TNT shot at All Out and not All Out. out they mentioned the winner gets. So that is, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's a really long time for this winner to kind of hover as the challenger. And does it suggest that there might not be a TNT title defense on on All In, or will that champion de- be determined, or that challenger be determined? I think it's just a case of who will be champion come All Out. This is the guaranteed challenger. I don't think they put that belt on ice for a month. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Blood and Guts. This was mostly the whole second hour of the show, starting off with Claudio Castagnoli, who had been on a training sabbatical to get ready for this week um, and looked in tremendous shape. Second was Kenny Omega, and they get the five-minute period. And chance of use this ring, as Claudio would deny the fans seeing Kenny in this other ring. Um, The poor fans sitting on the other side, because all the action was taking place in the ring closest to the ramp. Well, Omega finally tossed Claudio into the other ring. They That ring, they got plenty by the end of the night. Pac was in third, so it's two-on-one against Kenny. Hangman is fourth, and he comes in checking on his former partner, Kenny Omega, and they are able to even up the numbers. Number five, John Moxley, who won a Naga tournament on the weekend and thought, you know what, let's go all out on Wednesday night. This guy, I think John Moxley and Matt Jackson had their respective death wishes for this show. Like what, what can we do in this match that can separate us from life? That was the goal. So Moxley comes in and at first you think he's got the, the screwdriver, but it's a fork as he starts stabbing hangman. And as you mentioned, I could very well believe that this is, this guy is a dark side viewer and felt, why not? Let's change it up with a fork. And then he hands a fork over to Claudio and Moxley gets a bucket and dumps broken glass onto the mat. This is around what nine fifteen. So we got like glass spots throughout the next mm-hmm. thirty-five to forty minutes of uh, dynamite, and I think just about everyone took glass spots in the, in this match. Right. We would assume work glass. Um, we, we hope yes. Nick yeah. Jackson was sixth, and uh, he comes out, and uh, Nick. Uh, some of his highlights included this leaping cutter to pack and then a Rana that sends Claudio off the top onto the glass. And then Moxley lifts and dumps Nick onto the glass, stomps it on his chest. And this is when uh, Moxley's like vest comes off and we see him wearing a June Kasai shirt uh, as I guess his, uh, cool. his spirit animal for this match. Wheeler Yuta is out seventh, followed by Matt Jackson. And Moxley is bleeding at this point. And there's a Kataro Crusher to Yuta on the glass. Omega lands as well. Konosuke Takeshita is ninth, which means Don Callis joins commentary. And Moxley brings out a bed of nails and sets this thing up in the corner. And Omega takes a shotgun dropkick. And dude, this guy flies into this bed of nails. And the whole crowd is chanting, holy shit. Though the best call was Tony Schiavone. What the hell are we doing? And Moxley then body slams Omega onto the bed of nails. Mm-hmm. So. Great reaction to any of the bed of nail spots. Um, I don't know if we've seen a bed of nails before. Um, in AEW, have I we? I think that's a new one for AEW. What, I mean, if if it would have happened, I'm sure it would have happened in a Moxley match. Um, do you think this was the compromise? Moxley wanted skewers. They said no, no way. It's like, well, then I want bed of nails. I'm like, fine, nails. Yeah, I don't know. This didn't make it into the memo, so um. I would assume he had to have special clearance for the better nails. We have one participant left. And when this countdown clock came up, dude, there was a roar 
from this audience as the countdown came and in last is Kota Abushi, involved in a match with Kenny Omega for the first time since December of 2018. Mm-hmm. They had a tag match against Tanahashi and Osprey. Um, I will say physically, Kota Bushi certainly looks like he has lost some of his definition. I don't know mm-hmm. if it's like he just has not been able to uh, train as hard throughout this time. But I mean, this guy and I mean, he's also getting getting older as well. But I mean, it was not his usual like ripped physique that we were uh, accustomed to a- as well. But Nonetheless. I, thought, I thought he looked similar to like the way he looked during WrestleMania weekend for GCW. Yeah, I, I I think a very clear like lack of um ability to train at the same level a, a, as he he used to. Um, all of this is kind of to be expected, you know. And I think it helped that he was um one of five men here. I mean, in a very very physical match. Don't get me wrong, and he did a whole lot that was impressive here. But um, it this is not yet the Kota Ibushi of old. Yuta runs up the ramp to attack Abushi and gets stopped. And then Abushi enters and dude, he just starts dropping guys with right hands and he stares down Moxley. And this place is just on their feet. And Moxley is stepping on Omega's hand on the nails as he gives the middle finger to Abushi. Like everyone had like their moments, but to me, John Moxley to me was the star of this match. Like oh, he was yeah. at another level. Like this was his environment and he was like the ultimate deathmatch yeah. wrestler for this entire period. And I imagine he had a ton of contributions in terms of ideas, but uh, just his presence in this match, I just thought was unmatched. Completely. Yeah. I mean, he and, and put, he's also dripping blood at this point, like from head to toe, like his face is covered. Well, he puts the blood in blood and guts, you know, he probably puts the guts in blood and guts too, you know, um, he is a really a remarkable wrestler, honestly. Um, and I, I think the topic of blood use in wrestling is is one we'll probably get into quite a bit, you know, uh, on double on the double shot coming up later. Um, but um, you know, if you're going to use it, I would allow it in blood guts. I think if John Moxley is going to bleed tonight, was a good night to do it. Well, Moxley gets dropped on the bed of nails by by Abushi, who follows with a standing moonsault to Moxley on the bed of nails, and we get. Yuta and Matt Jackson climbing on top of the cage during the picture in picture, no less. And then Matt starts with the rolling, uh, the rolling Northern lights and he gets to the edge and he's calling for one more. I was like, what is your plan? What is the plan here? And Yuta stopped him from going for one more Northern lights. This was insane. So last year it was what the, the uh, big swing audio doing the giant swing on top. Yeah. Um, that was already crazy enough. And this year, they decided to have Matt Jackson's locomotion Northern Lights suplexes, which is an even scarier spot to see somebody perform because you see the path and you just you think, like, obviously, like, he's he wasn't going to do it, but it's the tease of it that makes things so incredibly, like, it, fun, fun and suspenseful and scary. Uh, it, I thought it was just a wonderful use of, like, the top of the skate, cage, top of the cage spot this, this year. And then. You cannot write this. This was just so perfect. Up comes a QR code. And it's a PSA for the the, the Red Cross to donate amazing. blood. Uh, this was just amazing. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it man, had to be. It, had I mean, to be right? it was just too perfect. So Claudio and Pac are setting up Hangman and Nick for like pile drivers or power bombs in the ring. And Matt is on top of the cage 
And somehow he's got a bag of thumbtacks, so he just dumps them on top of Claudio and Pac, who take back body drops. The crowd has seen nails, they've seen tacks, they've seen forks. They start chanting for tables. And then a table is brought out, and they quickly move on to fire, which we didn't need fire in this match and did not get. Um, then we get a, a barrage of superplexes onto tacks and glass. Pack is dangling from the top of the cage, holding on, and comes down with a double foot stomp, putting Matt through a table between both rings. Oh, that was so insane. Oh, this was nuts. They do the standoff in the two rings. And then uh, Pack takes a snapdragon on the glass. And Kenny goes for the one-winged angel. And it's turned into the brutalizer, which is how Pack beat Omega at the first all-out. And Callus, Callus was great with this line, brings up the bad neck that Kenny is working with on top of that. And we get the giant swing on Matt into a sharpshooter. And the Golden Elite are all trapped in submissions. Abushi breaks free and he saves all the team members, including lighting up Claudio with kicks. Moxley gets up. He goes over. He kisses the camera lens uh, with, with the, the roving cameraman on the apron. And all this blood is on the lens. And this dude's got to wipe it off to it's get gross. a clean shot for the remainder of this match. Because they still got like 10 Great shot, but gross. Yeah. Just disgusting. Claudio and Pack then start getting into a shoving match, and they have to get in between them. Pack gives the finger, and he gets bolt cutters and cuts the door open, and he leaves. He walks out on the BCC. So I think that is certainly going to play itself out. And then Omega makes a big spirited comeback on everyone. Takeshita senses trouble, and Don Callis signals for him, and Takeshita abandons the team as well. So that would probably end the alliance with the BCC. Uh, there's a it answers the question of whether or not they're actually in the BCC. Yeah, I mean, that ends it. And I think it would also, by the end of this, you wonder, do the BCC stay as heels after this as well, after they're abandoned by their team and now they have a reason to go after those guys. But there's a buckshot to Claudio, another one to Yuta in the opposite ring, uh, co- along with the combination V-trigger with Hangman to the back. And then we get a super kick to Yuta. It's just the death of Wheeler Yuta. They cuff Moxley and Yuta gets rammed into Matt's shoe with the tacks and Hangman chokes out Yuta with a chain. 50 minutes and 52 seconds as Kansas plays us out and Claudio is there helping up Yuta. Abushi is getting into Moxley's face and like a dozen matches that come out of this potentially uh, based on everyone's availability. And the, I mean, the, this was spectacular. The end, uh, Tony uh, afterwards also uh, made mention that it was Mox who surrendered to, to save Wheeler Yuta. So, you know, you're, you're, theory about a potential bcc babyface turn i think is very possible just simply based off of that sort of note alone you know like the leader wanting to protect um rather than you know seek more violence you know to to the the youngest in 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 the, in the group and um, if you do claudio and pack on friday i mean claudio is the clear babyface in that scenario and yeah they really babyface hmm. moxley by you know at the end here saving his teammate i would say pack is this I would say Pack is relatively undefined. You know, like we we don't even like he walked out on the heel. I mean, but clearly the heel at the end. It might have been, but it might have been like he got so pissed off. Like they're all heels, and it was a heel walking out on a heel. And in either case, this elite BCC feud appears to be done at this point. And is there anything more left for the BCC to do as heels once you've got this big feud out out of the way? Maybe now is actually the time for a babyface turn. Maybe they were teasing it at the end here. Um, 
I kind of felt like the pack Claudio like rift was kind of forced and you can understand why. I mean, they probably had no reason to, to, you know, feud while Mark Briscoe was still an active um, uh, participant in death before dishonor. So um, I think they did their best to try to create that rivalry from the start of this match over to the end. Um, and, and it was fine. Like in the end for something like a ring of honor, is the match going to be hot? And I think the pack versus Claudio matches. Yeah decently pretty pretty hot um this On match top was amazing that, yeah, yeah. It, it was amazing i just wanted to add that uh i guess after they went off the air um the remaining bcc members and the elite they all shook hands in the uh in the middle of the ring so there you go the, so the moral a, it, of the it's story a, it's is, a baby face turn i mean I think they wouldn't do that in front of a crowd unless like they were like i don't know seeking some sort of like yeah. storyline reason for it so. i would hope way that if i stabbed you in the head with a screwdriver I would hope that we could go through our violent match and that you would uh, at least shake my hand afterwards and you could forgive me for, you know, stabbing you and making your life hell like that. It's, it, it, it's a, it's a lesson actually. And, um, you know, adult uh, men solving their problems. I would Northern Lights suplex you, uh, in succession on top of the cage a few times first, but then yeah, we could, we could shake hands. I'd have it, it coming. It was, this match was chaotic it was creative it was violent and it was a ton of fun i thought 50 minutes i thought it was definitely the best of the three blood and guts we've seen um i'll take your word for it but i like last year's was really spectacular i mean the first one it was just it was such like new territory for them to try in aew like they've they've all been quality matches but i i thought this was um just just a step above i mean it was um, you somebody know, like you had a lot of memorable moments in last year's as well, and another big crowd in, in Detroit. But this one, I mean, this was—I I couldn't believe how quick this went by as well. Yeah. Like it was all of a sudden, it's like ten two, and it was just a yeah. nonstop violent, violent spectacle. It delivered everything it teased, and I just don't know how you how you follow future ones of these. Like the the level. I'll tell you. So I'll tell high. you how. You put John Moxley in there no matter what, okay? Like, he is an essential ingredient at this point in these sort of matches. Um, or at least somebody very, like Jun Kasai, you know, maybe you bring him in. Like, oh, he, God. He, you, you kind of have promised that level of like violence. And it's not just about blood loss. It's not just about violence in these types of matches. It's about intent, incredible creativity, incredible planning of these spots and incredible choreography of, of just like, these these impressive athletic feats on top of that you had i think a very intriguing i would say almost emotional like you know reunion between kenny omega and kota ibushi for a lot of longtime fans of the golden lovers that was enough to like you know increase a ton of interest alone so like every single second of this match i think offered something really like worthwhile for people watching and as a 50 minute tv segment god was it tremendously entertaining all right. Well, that was um pretty spectacular edition of AEW Dynamite that had a wide range of matches and angles on the show. Let's get to feedback because we still have the double shot uh, coming up. Uh, we have a few people here that want to chime in. Let us start off with Benjamin, who writes in, MJF and Cole against Sammy and Daniel Garcia was so entertaining and fun. Blood and Guts is chaotic fun. I hope everyone gets time off to recover. It's a little sad that AEW has five hours of programming now and could only squeeze in one short women's match on Dynamite tonight. Kind of figured Jack Perry's heel persona was going to be Hollywood Jack Perry. The music change was good. Not sure the FTW title has meaning, even after they contextualized its history in the show. AEW has too many titles. 
Hollywood Jack Perry would, would probably be, I mean, a little too predictable. Plus the fact that like the man's just not an a- actor. He's from Hollywood, but he has like no credentials um, to his name. And it seems to, you know, maybe call for maybe a bit more of a flamboyant character that Jack Perry is just, is just simply not. So that sounds like an awkward fit just without and seeing I, it. I think branching off from like, you know, not being reminded of reminding people that, you know, he's, he's Luke Perry's son is probably going to help him in the long run as well. Uh, Kenny goes, uh, Kenny says, I was at the show live and I hate to say it, but the tag match should have been the main event outside of the stunts. The crowd seemed to not know what to do during blood and guts and nothing got the pop that the double clothesline did. Wrestling is funny. I also wonder if they needed to do a better job letting the average fan know who Ibushi was. Hook came off as a much bigger star. At the end of the night, Kenny made a speech, and the elite and BCC all shook hands and hugged a nice moment after a brutal match. Um, It's interesting. Did that come across to you, John? Like not, not in the least. They went nuts. When that countdown clock came up, everyone knew it was Ibushi coming in. I think that it was – Yeah, I – I didn't sense at all that this crowd was uh, not into this. Um, they seemed pretty heated throughout this. Like it was, it was very loud for the big spots in the tag match. But I mean, if I was laying this out, I, I would not, I would, I would hate to have followed this. And I don't think the tag would have worked coming. I don't think anything would have worked coming out after this. I agree. Could they have made a bigger deal of uh, who Kodobushi was? I'm always in favor of introducing a video package or something just to kind of expl- catch audiences up about, you know, why, why this is such a big deal. I, for me, at least, Ibushi seems like a bigger star than like a Vikingo would be that I would assume the audience might know. But you're right. Like a lot of people would have no idea what the connection is and why he's supposed to be such a big deal and what the hell the golden elite are even are. So I don't think that ever hurts. Mm, they didn't do it this time. Uh, I, there's a super chat here. Let's go to a sorry, sorry. Uh, James sends $10. Thank you very much, uh, James, for that support. He says, great show tonight. I just wanted to shout out way for the help of getting set up with a VPN. It greatly improved my viewing of blood and guts tonight. Thank you both for all you do. Well, not a problem. Po- uh, NordVPN.com slash post wrestling. Um, give some love to, uh, one of the sponsors of this show in the past. And, uh, AEW plus is really the best way, honestly, of watching these shows. Let's go to Brian in New Jersey. Blood and Guts was wild and chaotic with some big memorable moments, but any real story to the match didn't really surface until the final minutes as Pack and Takeshita abandoned ship and the Golden Elite unleashed BCC-level violence with a five-on-three advantage. It also felt its length more. I thought Anarchy in the Arena was better overall. I enjoyed MJF and Cole against Sammy and Danny even more. Blind Eliminator tag might be the best tournament AEW has ever done. First, Baron Corbin meets himself in the woods on Tuesday. And tonight, Jack Perry buries Jungle Boy. A good amount of self-reflection this week. Yeah, yeah. Baron Corbin met this mystery man in the woods that turned out to be Baron Corbin on Tuesday for those that did not see it. I, I thought, like, man, this is our, our redo of uh, The Undertaker, Undertaker. Um, doppelgangers ex- exist in pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. Can I say? Uh, let's go to Cody from Maine, who says, I've been to every AEW event held in Massachusetts over the last four years, including tonight's show. This is easily the hottest crowd the arena has, the area has seen yet. Not sure of the reason for the Brit squash, but everything else delivered. The tag match was fantastic. Has it been a goofy detour for the world title picture? Yes, but I personally enjoy this type of goofy. The vast majority of the crowd were on their feet for the entirety of the main event. So I picked a bad morning for leg day, but what a spectacle. An event I won't forget for a long time. 
All right, we go to uh, Jordan from the Bronx. Uh, I won't get through all of this, but let's uh, read some of his points. It's absurd how purely everything about Cole and MJF has been. Their matches have been straight out of 90s house show era wrestling, and it's fun. I could have done without the dance-off with the tag title shot at stake, but I, can, I can't I can argue with how the building reacted. Love the wrinkle at the end to keep their true natures intact. It'll be a bigger deal when they eventually break up. Shameful of AEW to get a Britt Baker squash in just to seemingly fill a quota as opposed to anything more consequential. For all that, they might as well have either put off the FTW title match for another day or not even done a women's segment at all. Blood and Guts continues to live up to its name, a bed of nails straight out of a Sonic game, glass raining thumbtacks, and yet the crowd still chanted for tables. And then when they got them, fire. I suspect that Danielson would have let Wheeler perish before he would ever have surrendered. And that's, let's go to Alexander from Portland, who also attended live. Very entertaining show. The tag match wasn't a great athletic showcase, but damn, was it fun. Jack Perry got great heel heat. Hook was pretty over, too. The main event was hectic action, and Kenny cut a promo afterwards saying he wanted Ibushi in AEW again. Ibushi seemed somewhat popular, but the We Want Tables chants seemed more over than anything Ibushi did. Similarly, there was a We Want Fire chant that got more over than Coda's entrance. Plenty of people in my area left after Dynamite, but I don't blame them because it's hard to follow a match like Blood and Guts. The Royal Rampage had some solid and surprising names in it, but it was hard to get invested since there were no stakes announced for the winner. Course, well, well they did announce uh, maybe it wasn't in the building, but there were mm-hmm. on television. Yeah. Question, where do you see Hangman going from here? I can see the Bucks getting back into the tag title scene and Kenny getting revenge over Takeshita, but Hangman seems like the odd man out. Yeah, I, I don't see a clear path of where where he goes next if you i would i mean so are we safe to assume that ibushi is only like one and done or something like this if if you want to read into that promo like it certainly was not a case of like he came out and then after the show up goes the graphic or anything like that so yeah i think that's certainly what people are going to take from that I think there's always some potential in, you know, telling some sort of like, hey, like a battle between Kenny's two tag team partners um, in Hangman and also Ibushi um, or just any sort of combination or pairing between any of those. I think there's something there. Um, Do they I think the elite have to stick together for a little bit. Right. You know, like they they just went through all that just to kind of band together to take on the the um, the the BCC. I think a match with House of Black potentially is available. You know, that that's a huge money trios match. And, so and probably maybe. something like quick with the Dark Order to get to the House right. of Black. Like you have that lingering. Right. So I, I think that could maybe be your bridge program for TV. And maybe that gets you to the House of Black for one of the big shows. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if this person's officially been announced, but there there's definitely a very surprising name for uh Why don't you just read it? Minoru Suzuki is on Royal Rampage. Okay. He's in the battle world, and apparently there's a face-off. But or anyway, he's actually in the graphic, so I'm not even uh, you know uh, spoiling anything. Yeah, um, I didn't look closely at the graphic. They did have the the images there, so that's uh, that's, that's yeah, fun. that could be All fun. Right. Okay, let's go to Joshua from Arkansas. Hey guys, longtime cafe member, first time commenter. Just had to finally log in to say MJF Cole versus Sammy and Daniel was my favorite comedy match in a long time and on my short list for match of the year. The way MJF can milk the crowd as a fake baby face and build up so much drama for basic moves like the dive to the outside with the double clothesline. This guy's just on another level. Also, I want to give a shout out to both of you for your G1 coverage. I think journalists like you deserve a lot of credit for creating interest and generating revenue for this business. I can only speak for myself, but I wouldn't normally be spending time and money on things like the G1, GCW, or other indies, but your enthusiasm and expert coverage of events outside the WWE AEW make it even more valuable for me to stay current on the world of wrestling. Keep up the great work. Oh, wait, that, that was from uh, my parents. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
I never thought of us like that. Are we generating revenue for the industry? Are we big, really like big draws? Okay. Are we economy stimulators uh, of professional wrestling? I, I didn't realize we were so important. Yeah. And wow. We are. It's not inflation. It's it's the post effect. All right. Oh. Well, thanks for everyone's feedback. Uh, a lot of great uh, points and feedback, and especially those that were there live. Quite a few of you in Boston. We have a lot of listeners in Boston. It sounds huge, like. huge in Boston, and oh. huge everywhere we go. And we hope that you will be going to the Post Wrestling Cafe because in about uh, two minutes we are going to be up chatting about Dark Side of the Ring from Tuesday night. Uh, we don't sleep, we don't stop, and we record everything. So that's coming up, and then the next time you will hear us is rewind away dropping when way thursday night awa super clash 1985 not even gonna ask away the question because he has um like jungle boy he has he's buried his own grave uh <laughs> yes dug his own grave was the term i'm going for so this is going to be a fun show coming up because uh, i'm extremely tired but we are going to keep going uh thanks to everyone for joining us tonight and that is it roll the credits <laughs>